Hey Rod, how are you doing? Doing well. Um, since we last spoke, we've seen each other. It's uh, really fun for you hosting all the team up in London. Really neat week. Yeah, we had um, a busy week. I had to take a couple of days off to recover from it, actually, because, um, yeah, we I can't believe how much we crammed in from um, just sitting down with the troops and reviewing and where we where we were and where we're going next, and then had some pretty cool meetings in London. Um, we caught up with uh, Tom Blomfeld, who's the CEO at Monzo, and... Um, and he he gave you a Monza card. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for helping me get that set up. I was sort of showing actually our Minister of Small Business and the way that Monzo Monzo cards work. And when I saw this, I was so blown away. So it's from what I understand, it's a prepaid card on, and they're on their way to becoming a full bank. But when you um, go and do a contactless payment, then your Monzo app. Uh, uh, ping straight away and it opens up with all of the merchant information and what was really interesting is is you pre-classify that transaction right at point of sale and when I saw that it just made me think that's how um, that's how mobile banking should be that's what banks should be doing doing that um, pre-categorization because if if you do that then it's so much easier to, to process that data magically through any sort of sort of personal tax software or accounting software like zero yeah it's this this notion of almost like a tagged um or enriched bank feed and and some the guys at monzo are doing it and and they're going great guns and aiming to be a full bank by next year and targeting that consumer uh, retail banking space um there's a whole host of these new banks popping up in the uk so you've got monzo you've got starling bank Atom Bank, um, Tide, we're, we're catching up with the guys at Tide in a couple of weeks. And just in the last 12 months, 24 months, there's just been a huge um, kind of explosion of these new completely digital online banking experiences. And, 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 and one, of the, one of the cool things I, I think that uh, we see, I mean, the UK has had this fintech thing going on now for about four or five years natural place in London for it to happen. Obviously, London, a huge kind of financial centre, lots of technology. Um, in the last five or six years, we've had the emergence of um, government support for technology innovation and technology startups around Silicon Roundabout and Tech City. And we've now, we're have we now seeing, I think, the benefit of having all these really smart financial services brains and all these clever technology brains all sitting in the same coffee shops and coming up with the same... Um, solutions to some classic problems so it's, it's great to be seeing and being part of that and 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 I think it, it certainly changes my thinking and expectations about what maybe a bank feed could look like in two or three years when they have all this extra data tagged on it really really exciting. yeah yeah it was neat and we've always thought that New Zealand and Australia were, were leading the world uh, with banking, but it's really changed now. And I think one of the other key factors, which is seeing the acceleration of the UK uh, fintech scene, is the, uh, the regulation. And it's kind of it's kind of weird, but um, things like the revised Payment Services Directive (PSD2), where by 2018 banks have to open up their APIs through Europe and through the UK, that's actually driving all of this um, innovation. And what impressed me when we were talking to all the banks that we were um, with over the last week, how they're all now active working, you know, actively working on their next generation feeds. And that and that's where it all must get to. And I look at um, 
uh, the lack of innovation and how slow some of the banks are in other parts of the world, I, I really think think that London is is becoming the most exciting place for banking at the moment. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think um, it's it's been a while to get to get to this point, but it's definitely coming. And I think I mean one of one of the banks, um, and we won't name them. Um, when we were talking about PSD two raised a really interesting point that I hadn't picked up before. And, and so Payment Services Directive came in, uh, European Directive, under which the UK is currently bound, obviously, still part of the EU. Um, and the revision to that PSD2 uh, follows um, the original one and, and extends um, a whole lot of areas in terms of making it easier to change banks. It's all about addressing this kind of lock-in problem that, that, that people often have it's, it's really hard to change bank it's really hard to get your data out it's really hard to be portable um, it opens up the whole payments marketplace um, and, and, and to wrap up both of those outcomes then it has to make data accessibility much more open and, and rather than us necessarily having to beat up banks to get individual discrete bank feed um, partnerships in place of which we've got seven now in the UK um, then, then it could be in three or four years' time we might see this this idea of a bank feed being more of a universal thing. But the point that, that I didn't pick up was that um, this whole thing around managing risk and fraud and and and, and, um, and financial services um, uh, uh, fraud, uh, the banks currently, um, if somebody loses money because they're hacked or compromised and it's down to the individual, then often the bank still has to pick up the tab because um, they do, they're, they're, the, they're the kind of um, the grown-up, I guess, in the relationship. But they made the point that PSD2 um, could make it much harder to kind of identify if, you're, if you've got multiple parties in a particular transaction or a particular payments workflow. Um, it could be uh, really hard to pin down where, where the liability sits at any one point in time. Um, and I hadn't picked up on that, and I think... I mean, PSD2 is really interesting because it opens everything up, but I think it also potentially opens up a whole lot more work for the banks and for consumers and businesses to think about fraud and security in a way that they hadn't done before. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. Yeah, and it's been interesting. I think we've got a really big part to play in that because we, we see the entire kind of workflow of a small business. So you see these risk issues as you sort of jump transactions um, across network and I'm really excited by uh, some of the programs we're working on now looking at this cross systems fraud and if you go back to what we're really trying to do if we want to grow small business it's getting ac getting them access to capital and debt what I what I love over the last sort of uh, year or so is we've been exploring more about our financial web it's not about disintermediating the banks at all it's about working with them and if we can help them with some of this fraud and security stuff if we can activate our channel to to uh, educate small businesses about these new growth services then um, I can see online accounting and online banking gets very very close much more than what it is now yeah no it's fascinating so yeah we are um, having some really really um, great conversations up here um, we actually didn't mention the fact at the beginning that um, we just we just put our uh, half year results out so you've been probably on TV and lots of uh, interviews for the last couple of days how's that gone 
Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, we're, we're a really interesting company. I think people are, are kind of, certainly in our part of the world, they're not comfortable with how fast we've grown. So, you know, it's really exciting. You know, we started this business um, under 10 years ago, and now we're passing 300 million annualized revenue. And, you know, we're the market leader um, pretty much everywhere outside of the US. So, yeah, we feel really good, but it's um, this, it does just feel like the beginning. It feels like we've really only built um, the first wave where you take accounting functionality from the desktop and do it in the cloud. And having now um, done the platform change largely now, so all of our customer records are now on AWS, we're just pulling over those last sort of few final services. The ability for us now to really transform accounting by having the servers working overnight is super interesting. And I think a broader issue, not just in the in the um, accounting industry, but pretty much anyone who wrote that first generation of SaaS software and started five, eight, ten years ago all have to replatform because the benefits of being on these new engines is just so clear. So it's really interesting. I think we're going to see not just in our category, but in a bunch of different categories, the the uh, traditional brands have all of the issues now of moving from sort of the old sort of desktop to cloud. You've kind of got to move from cloud one to cloud two or cloud three. So yeah, it's a it's a pretty fascinating time in tech. And what what I'm really really uh, excited about is we're taking all of our staff on that machine learning and and AI journey. So for every part of product set and every every bit of work we're looking at moving forward, how do you make it smart? How do you make the servers do the work? And um, I had a, actually a great session with a with a with a large bunch of um, accountants last night. And really talking about this being the golden age of services as we get away from the traditional model where you're actually just processing the numbers. If those are done for you, we've got to make sure that we're delivering playbooks for accountants to go in and truly be these growth consultants. So, I, you know, and one of the quotes that got picked up was, I, I really do think there's going to be more innovation in the next couple of years than we've seen in the last 10. Yeah, so we're about to go on the road. Um, we're doing five roadshows in the UK over the next couple of weeks, so I'm going to be packing my suitcase. Um, and we're going to be seeing, I think, the uh, best part of a couple of thousand registrations coming along to those five events. We're in London, Edinburgh, um, Birmingham, Manchester and Bristol. And we, we've, we're, um, by the time this podcast is published, I think we'll have gone public with the, the numbers, but we've done some research. Um, and it's just interesting... Uh, so we spoke to, I think it was a thousand small businesses. Um, and at the moment, um, so the numbers that, that that popped out for me was that 59% of small businesses don't think they'll need an accountant in 10 years' time. Um, and and that's largely based on, well, what do I use my accountant for today? And that that's going away um, and becoming automated or becoming digitized. Um, uh, and accountants definitely have a job to do to, to reinvent the the value that they um, that they currently offer. And it doesn't mean that a, um, robots or automations is, is coming to kind of uh, eliminate jobs out of accounting. Um, in fact, there, there was a really great feature in Wired this month um, where Wired got um, Obama um, and uh, one of my kind of loose contacts is a really interesting. Japanese entrepreneur called uh, Joey Ito and he's on the board at Sony and he's currently director at um, MIT Media Lab and so it was Joey Ito and, and Barack Obama talking about AI and where's it all going 
And Obama made the, made the point that a lot of the time when you talk about bringing machine learning or, or, or AI or automation to an industry or to a task, people jump straight to that kind of Hollywood scenario. And I get, I'm asked, being asked by journalists all the time at the moment to kind of comment on features they're writing about AI. Um, and you see all these lists of the top 10 most at-risk jobs of becoming um, redundant because of robots in 10 years. And we have a habit because we're at the beginning of this journey of simplifying it down to, um, well, nobody's going to have a job because everything's going to be automated. And Obama made the point in this article that um, actually that's way, way down the track. We're not, we're not going to be completely, unless you're doing something very, very low level, it's unlikely to be automated completely. Um, but so that if that generalized AI or generalized automation is some way off um, and the kind of Skynet um, dystopia isn't going to happen anytime soon, what is happening and what is interesting is the specialized AI, so taking a discrete processor or task and, and making that automated. And, and what they're doing at Media Lab and MIT is, is, is actually moving away from calling it artificial intelligence because that, that frames the conversation um, in a world of HAL 9000s and robots. And, and they actually refer to it more, and, and they've done a lot of research, it's about extending um, intelligence. It's about taking a job or taking a, somebody in a, a particular professional category of work and actually enabling them to do more. And I think that's where we are. I think we'll get over the AI sci-fi thing pretty quickly and become habituated to what it actually means in terms of helping you just do your job more effectively. Yes, there will be people that probably do very, very basic um, transactional roles that, that, that might not be around in 10 years, but for the majority of people, and I think for accountants, uh, th th a lot of them are on that journey already and, and thinking about how they can reinvent the values. So we, we, we're going to be sharing the survey results on the road and be interesting to see what feedback we get from accountants to that. Yeah, it is cool how the, there are some amazing technologies now which are actually, even for us as technologists, uh, are really blowing even us away. And um, I was really interested to hear about your virtual reality experience. Did you buy a new toy over the last couple of weeks? I got the uh, PlayStation uh, Virtual, the PlayStation VR um, headset for the PlayStation 4. And I hadn't really, um, I hadn't played with VR um, at all. I hadn't played with Oculus or anything. So I kind of went into it with uh, relatively low expectations and was actually really blown away by it. Um, it's, it is... Um, Obviously, kind of version one, um, there are a couple of things that that will need to be ironed out, and so I mean, so screen resolution. If you have a if you have a digital display so close to your eyes, then you're going to see, um, even if it's I think I think it's like HD quality in each eye, but even HD quality resolution, you still get a kind of vague screen door effect over the image in certain situations, um, but you quickly um, kind of zone that out. And and I found that the combination of so you put this 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 headset on and it kind of blocks out your reality and all of a sudden you're sitting in this spaceship and then you put a pair of headphones on and so that kind of blocks out your audio environment and it's incredibly um, engrossing. I, 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 you you are clearly you're not you don't believe you're in the spaceship but it's holy crap it was amazing in terms of the uh, the way that it, it grabs you and and you you. You're looking around you, and you're looking around in 3D, and it from a so from a simple gaming perspective, it 
it marks a whole step forward in terms of um, just how much focus. I mean, you can sit play, playing on a PlayStation or playing on a, a, a video game right now is kind of antisocial, but at least you're you have have a degree of um, objectivity. And if my wife walks into the room and I can hold a conversation with her if I'm playing a video game or, or watching TV on a sofa. But the thing about virtual reality headsets is that you might as well not be at home. Um, and so I, I rather than casually playing a video game, you kind of fully have to commit to it because you're you're effectively stepping out of the room and into this other virtual space. And you can't hear what's happening around you. You can't see what's happening around you. And to all intents and purposes, you may, may may as well not be at home. And so not notwithstanding the fact, I think we might see an increase in divorce rates and, and people being burgled without being realized or, or house fires. And, <laughs> and you know, I think that I think VR has a whole kind of social dimension to it that we, we're going to have to adapt to. But I was blown away by it. I was really blown away, really um, captured my imagination and and I can't wait to see version two and version three in the next in the next few years. Um, I, I, so what's I, the what's the state of what's the state of the software you buy now? Are you just walking through worlds, yeah, or are you actually playing a game? So so um, so I uh, you could be driving a car, um, and and so so the experience of VR um, and a kind of a motorsport kind of um, simulation is you're looking around you. So instead of just looking straight ahead at the road. You're looking and you can look out the window, you can look in the driver's door mirror, you can look in the rear view mirror, look at the passenger seat. Um, or if you're in a spaceship, you're in this cockpit and you're looking above you and around you and below you. And it's it's incredibly, incredibly, um, uh, it, it just really captures your imagination and, you, and you, you're in that new place. And so you, you could drive a car, you can... Um, fly a plane. The simulation aspect of it is fascinating. So, and I think in five years it'll be just once they get to like 4K resolution in each eye, um, it'll be incredible. But e even Gen One, I was blown away by it. Mm, fascinating. I, I kind of I think about how good that is now and how how it will be in like 20 or 30 years when we stop working and we're in our sort of old folks' home. It's kind of not, you know. I kind of think that what will happen is, um, is that you'll kind of find people that you knew through your life, and you'll go kind of, you know, you'll be able to talk to them and be able to sort of go and visit somewhere jointly with them. But we've got this really interesting company in Wellington called AI, which which scans you, so you can get your digital representation to load into these games. So if you think about how that technology will go in, in, in the next few years, I think you'll probably go and get a scan maybe every five years, and then maybe you can even take uh, put some of your photos in, and it can use that to build the models, and it should be able to interpolate uh, what you what you look like at a particular period of time, because when you know say in 20 or 30 years you go back to you know chat to somebody that you knew in your 20s or your 30s i think the protocol would be that you would meet them in the same kind of virtual body as you were at that age and maybe there'll be a whole business around maintaining your um avatars you know through that kind of life uh, through those life stages it's just kind of interesting to see where all of that goes well, if you subscribe to Elon Musk's um, worldview, this is all a simulation anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and actually, it's really interesting. So there's this Swedish uh, philosopher um, 
called Nick Bostrom who wrote this paper about it and are we living in a simulation? And, and I have to say, since I've got this PlayStation VR thing, I can I can see they might have a bit of a point. And so video games started off as Pong, like a bat, two bats and a kind of dot on the screen. And we're now at the point where you're flying a spaceship and you believe you are, momentarily at least, suspending belief that you're flying some kind of X-wing um, spaceship. And if you then project, hypothetically, if we've gone from Pong in the 1970s to PlayStation VR uh, in 2016, extrapolate forwards another 30, 40 years, even 100 or 1,000 years, and, and the capability of technology to render very believable simulations um, could be incredible. It could simulate pretty much everything, and therefore um, this very well, this reality we live in could be a simulation, and we don't know it. And so speaking of Elon Musk, um, he he's just like um, on another level, I think. So he's done Tesla, um, which is electric cars, but now um, autonomous electric cars. Uh, and, and so that's like two categories in one. Uh, he's got the SpaceX uh, project, kind of like trying to come up with low-cost travel to other planets. And he's a big investor and I think is actually just in the process of acquiring Solar City, who are the kind of solar roof, solar energy company. And I saw a thing this week where they've just launched these new Solar City roof, uh, solar city roof tiles that are solar panels and they look like roof tiles. And so he's managed to sell you the car, uh, sell you the means by which you generate the electricity to run the car and selling you these big batteries you put in your garage to store all the electricity. And that's kind of like Shell or one of the big oil companies getting into the car industry. It's fascinating um, how many disciplines he's he's spinning up. It's incredible. He's he's definitely one of these kind of Edison once in a generation guys. Incredible. And I just love how he implements strategy in plain sight. Like like one of the things that blew me away when they were doing you know putting these um are these superchargers and I they're probably about. 18 months, 24 months ago, seeing these graphs. And so, yes, they're rolling out the Tesla Model S. This was before the Model X. But they're putting a supercharger network right across the US, right across Europe. And I was going, oh, and it always sort of bugged me. It's like, why would they be doing that? You know, when they're short of capital, why would they be rolling out this massive infrastructure just so you could, um, just so you could potentially drive your car across country which no one would ever do you know most car journeys you 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 know drive out do your jobs and and you come back at night and you can charge up and then uh, in his last sort of big tesla announcement he said they're building trucks and it was like oh my god he's been building a distribution network you know transport distribution network in plain sight of course the superchargers are for trucks and then when you do a bit of research in that it's not just that you'll have um you know like like autonomous trucks you what you'll probably have is trains of trucks with one driver just being there sort of push the button if anything goes wrong but you might have 10 trucks just all digitally connected to each other and then um you know they can just go on park outside one of these supercharged stations charge up and there'll be some fast charging or you just you know swap the um swap the truck itself out uh you know so he is running multi-dimensions big strategy in plain sight and every so often when you think you've got your kind of head around it he peels back one more layer so fascinating i saw that there was the first trial of a interstate truck um autonomous truck delivery that delivered a load of beer um from one location in the u.s to another one i thought that, that would make for the world's least um 
the world's worst Smokey and the Bandit ripoff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I think we'll miss the days of um, like people driving trucks and cars. But the the other the other thing that I thought was just so clever. So they've announced that all Teslas pretty much from now will have all of the hardware and software for autonomous driving built in, even if it's and, and it will be um, not not available to to the to the owner to use it, but it's going to be running in stealth mode, and so you'll be driving your Tesla and going about your business and doing everything else. And meanwhile, the autonomous uh, brain and and cameras and everything else will be recording everything that happens. And the reason they're doing that and they're doing it in stealth mode is they're now actually building up like a database of um, so when somebody crashes their car. Uh, they'll be able to work out whether the uh, the autonomous uh, car hardware would have avoided the car crash or not. And they're going to build up this kind of case file of however many accidents over the next couple of years that Teslas are involved in where it's human error. And then they'll make a case, well, actually, if the car had been driving it, um, you, you, you wouldn't have crashed. And they'll, they'll, they'll then use that data to then argue with the U.S. regulators to say that you should give us a license to have autonomous vehicles on the road because actually we've just proven after like a multi-thousand, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Teslas will be generating all of this data to make their case that autonomous driving is better than than people driving. And they've just decided to build it into the cars to prove it. And I thought it was such an audacious and clever way of making an argument. It's like, yeah, we'll, we'll just run the, we'll just do a survey for two years and prove it to you. Incredible. Yeah, but it's like they're putting eight grand's worth of kit into every car. And it's interesting because I tried to order a Tesla Model X. They said they were in uh, New Zealand. That was when Elon Musk tweeted me back, I have to tell everybody. Um, <laughs> but they actually weren't. We were presented like a state of Australia. And so when I went to buy, you had to buy. It was all the Australian luxury car tax. But from this month, actually, I think you can order cars down here. So I'm pleased I waited because you would want to have all of the um, all of that extra hardware in there. Yeah. But also what fascinates me is that every car has the experience of every other car. So your car has the, has the experience of millions and millions of miles that have been driven. And if you see what they're doing with AI now where it's not prescriptive, you can imagine with all of that data, because uh, AI loves data, they'll be able to basically have the network of the Tesla cars working out how to drive better than any human can. And I, uh, and I was actually at uh, the New Zealand Angel Association presentation this morning, and there was a, just an amazing AI presentation um, from Creative HQ. And uh, AI has got so good now that even uh, combat pilots get beaten by the combat AI that runs on a Raspberry Pi. So, and that's not and that's not teaching the the AI how to fight. That's letting it see experience, and it works it out itself. And that uh, great example um, was it IBM Watson or uh, the Google one, where it just bet uh, the Go player. The they didn't uh, show it how to play. They basically gave it the rules, and it started coming up with these audacious moves that nobody has ever seen before. And, you know, one of the sort of jokes going around similar to the Elon Musk, you know, the probability is we're living in um, a simulation uh, with the Go game, it lost quite a few times. And uh, the question becomes, was the machine faking it? Yeah, because obviously any sufficiently intelligent, artificial intelligent being would would want 
us to not discover that it was actually running everything. So it has to <laughs> it has to lose a few games, otherwise we get suspicious. Listen, we can't finish yeah. before we before talking about um, uh, the new. You you were talking about the Apple stuff on the last uh, podcast, and they've just dropped some new MacBook Pros, which have upset a few people. Yeah, so I've sort of watched it, and my emotions have changed over the last week. And of course, I ordered one. But the thing that really bugs me is, um, you know, I think there's some some certain values, and you should look after your customers. And I'm sitting here with a, you know, with I've got a number of 27 inch monitors. Now I've got, um, I've got a some some 5K iMacs. I I brought. I'm on my second uh, 12 inch MacBook, and none of the stuff works together. You would think that for all of the the might that Apple has, and out of respect for their customers, they would give you the pathway for things to work. And you can't even buy one set of 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 gear that works. Like I really, um, you know, I've, I've actually changed from wanting to to plug the same notebook into different workstations to actually having different workstations. So my 12-inch MacBook stays in my bag, and I use that when I'm traveling because now everything's in the cloud anyway. So that means I can just go straight to my desk and, and turn on my 5K iMac. But um, but, but nothing connects. Uh, you know, and I just brought the new iPhone 7. I've got the new Thunderbolt, um, uh, uh, what's it called, the, um, the new earphones. You can't even plug those into the into the new device, so I, I kind of get what they're doing, but I just think there's these sort of values that you, you know, product companies need to look after their customers, and that's the big thing. I just don't feel looked after by Apple anymore. I think Johnny I've got into a bet with some PC manufacturer that they could build a bigger dongle business than they're going to build a multi-billion-dollar dongle business <laughs> off the back of this, <laughs> and it was a drunken yeah. night one night, but. Um, I think yeah. So so the new MacBook Pros have got this little touch screen, which is uh, kind of interesting, and uh, it's gone all USB C, and all the kind of pro community are thinking, oh my God, Apple have abandoned us, and and I think the reality is, they are probably building for a different demographic now to what they were ten years ago, and the people that would have bought a MacBook Pro ten years ago were probably in the creative industry. Um, probably producing videos and, and 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 definitely in the kind of arts more than, than 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 PCs in those days. But I think I think it's okay for Apple to change its focus. Um, and I think the the one thing that signals to me that they are definitely thinking about a different user and, and definitely want to signal moving on to another generation is that they removed the bong sound. So when you boot up an Apple Mac, it does this. Bong at the beginning, and new MacBook Pros don't do that, and that, that was almost like a deliberate poker tell to say, look, this is a we're moving on. You have to kind of let go of your old expectations for what a Mac should be, and just kind of chill out a little bit. And so interesting. I haven't had a look at one yet. They didn't have them in the local Apple store when I was there a couple of days ago, but I'll go and have a look. But I think, yeah, I think, I think it's yeah, and, 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 I, and I think you're right. I've, I've been thinking that for a while that actually we're not their customer anymore. In fact, they have to. Because they're such a big company, to move the needle, they've got to do big things, which isn't necessarily about having the latest cool thing. It's actually about opening up these massive, massive markets that move the needle for them. So opening opening up China and all the effort they're putting into that is probably more important for them than some of the things that they're driving. But I still look at the amount of R&D that they're putting into things, and, it's, and I'm not seeing it coming out the other end. And, you know, even though we're doing it all on par, well, that hasn't happened. 
So it just doesn't add up. There's a there's like missing multiple billions of R and D. Their R and D percentage, um, I think, has gone up slightly. And of course, as the numbers have gone up, the amount of you know absolute billions of dollars they're putting into R and D has has obviously moved forward. But it just isn't there. And the problem with us not being their customer anymore is it's very difficult to build a niche PC business because you need so many other technologies. So that would be fine if the market really worked and we source really neat new technology that we could jump onto, then then that would be fine. But it doesn't feel like there is. With the exception and and in contrast, the, the new Microsoft device, which was something that was um, really new and really quite exciting, Though, again, over the course of the week, as um, kind of researched a bit more about it, I don't know how practical it will be for the sort of use that I would have, but but massive respect to Microsoft for thinking out of the box and bringing in something that was generally exciting, especially that dial thing they put on the screen and allow you to, um, you know, change colors and do all that sort of stuff. What a, what a neat bit of hardware that was. I think that's the good thing about, I mean, so the, the competition, you could argue, has been lacking in that space for quite a while. And it's great to see Microsoft getting back into it and, and, and innovating again. I mean, Microsoft share price has never been higher in like a decade. And they are slowly but surely kind of reinventing um, that organization, which is a huge, huge endeavor and much kudos to them for doing that. And finally, giving Apple a run for the money on things like hardware, Google doing their stuff. And so I think ultimately, I, mean, I love it because I love technology and love seeing all these things coming down, but it's great for the great for the customer at the end of the day, although there may be some painful transitions in the process. Listen, we've uh, we've run out of time, so we should, uh, we should knock it on the head and um, save some of the other stuff for the next one. Fantastic. Talk soon. All right. Have a good weekend. Thanks, everyone.